My name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. And The Story is a church for people who have more questions than answers, people that are really searching, people that are looking for like a sort of a safe place to wander, to ask, to, to really um, uh, press into some of the doubts that we all carry around. Instead of just faking it like you might be tempted to do at churches sometimes, we really want to create a place where you're free to come and be a skeptic if that's who you are. But we do believe in the truth of Jesus, not necessarily in the truth of religion or the truth of what's been called Christianity or whatever, but in the truth of Jesus. And we think that what Jesus represents, who Jesus is, is truly different. So you can connect with us online in all sorts of ways. You see the links that are going up on the screen right now. And and we are now getting ready for Christmas, y'all. And and before I get started with this message and continue this series, I want to make sure y'all know what's up. If you were here on time, wasn't all of you, not to shame anyone, but you may or may not have heard Cat Ruff, our communications manager, walking us through what to expect with the Christmas Eve services that are starting sooner than you might think. And I wanted to just briefly take you through that, and I'll tell you why it's so important that you know this more than ever in a year before, because you're going to have to do a little planning more than usual. So the party starts this Thursday. We're not even waiting for Christmas Eve to celebrate Christmas Eve. We're going to have a Traveler's Christmas Eve service this Thursday night. That's the 17th. I know it's a little early, but uh, we're we're doing it, all right? 7 p.m. here in this building at our River Oaks campus. If you're going out of town for Christmas or if you need to celebrate Christmas Eve a little early for whatever reason, join us here for a full Christmas Eve candlelight experience, 7 o'clock this Thursday night. I got to write that sermon. All right, it's a good reminder. Okay, so... Next uh, on the list is our Christmas Eve Eve service. All right, so this is a big deal. We've never done this before. An outdoor Christmas Eve Eve service on the 23rd at 6 p.m. on the green space just outside of this building in River Oaks. It's called Blanton Field. It's right outside, just across the parking lot here. And at 6 p.m. on the 23rd, we're going to have a full outdoor Christmas Eve candlelight service. Full service like you might expect with carols and everything just a little bit colder than normal. Okay, so hopefully it won't be like today. It is a wet, sloppy day in Houston, Texas. If you're not here, it's crazy. And you guys, true believers here today, you've weathered the storm to get here. So uh, the 23rd, Christmas Eve, Eve, and then the big day, Christmas Eve. We got five services in two locations. All right, first of all, our Christmas Eve candlelight services here at River Oaks, our main campus, two o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock here in the building. And then at Timber Grove, for the first time ever, at our new building, it's going to be open for public worship for the first time ever, Christmas Eve, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock. Listen, even if you're not going to call Timber Grove your home campus, this is a great chance to see the space, to celebrate Christmas, to support Kale and the new campus over there. It's like a 10-minute drive most days, uh, 8200 Washington Avenue. I mean, 10 minutes from here. It's right there, just kind of in the heights. It's an awesome facility. We finally got the certificate of occupancy (laughs) recently, and we are pumped. So Christmas Eve, 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock at Timber Grove, okay? So you're free to catch more than one of those. If you want, all of those services are going to be socially distanced, and we ask that you BYO mask, okay? So at all the services, socially distanced, mask, we want to be safe and responsible, Uh, as citizens here in Houston, okay? So we're gonna do this the right way. That means you've got to plan ahead. That's why I'm telling you this and repeating some of what Kat said earlier. We need your RSVPs. 
I know this is hard for some of you who suffer from ADD like I do. <laughs> and so you're going to have to plan ahead. Just force yourself to do this. Choose a service. Go online, thestory.church slash RSVP. Or if you want more information about our Christmas services, thestory.church slash Christmas, and you can get that information. Be sure and, and RSVP because there's limited availability at all these services. They're going to fill up. Some of them have already started to fill up. Four o'clock and six o'clock here on Christmas Eve. Might be out of luck by now. But uh, the other ones, there's some availability. Y'all be sure and fill up those uh, Timber Grove campus uh, services as well. All right. Sorry for all the announcements, but I wanted to be sure and tell you since Christmas is right around the corner. It's mid-December, y'all. What happened? Here we are. It's uh, supposedly the longest year ever. In some ways it felt like it, but in other ways I can't feel like, I can't believe it's like mid-December. It's It's incredible. And so we're doing this uh, sermon series, this series of messages that's hopefully designed to get your heart ready. Because here's the deal. We all know we're supposed to um, be happy at Christmas. Uh, We've been told 50,000 times a year by Andy Williams that it's the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) Every Christmas, we hear that song over and over again. And I don't know, when you're not feeling it, um, and then you're told you're supposed to feel it, it can just add shame to the misery <laughs> that you're already in. And so how do we do that? How do we find real joy um, when we don't really feel it? And most of us would just be tempted to fake it. If you're a churchy person, you've been accustomed to faking joy for most of your life, probably. Uh, you go to church on Sunday mornings, your life's falling apart. Someone says, how you're doing? You say what? I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, you're a, you're a liar at church. That's great. So... Um, <laughs> That's how most of us are conditioned. We don't want people to think we're weird or that we're hurting or or that we're pitiful or whatever. And so we just fake it. What I'm asking is how can we really prepare? Because I think that even in a year like this, it's possible to find joy. Even at the end of a year like 2020, which has taken so much from us, we can choose to not let it take Christmas joy too. All right? So as I look back on the year, there have been little glimmers of hope in the midst of all this darkness and loss, right? So uh, some people have found ways uh, to take the 2020 lemons and make some real lemonade. In some of the darkest moments of the year that was, we saw Jim from The Office producing this show from his home office himself called Some Good News. And every few weeks, he would release a new episode of Some Good News. And just for a moment, we all felt a little bit of like, Charlie Brown-like joy, just breaking through the ordinary life that we were leading in 2020. And we all loved that show, and it it helped us to weather some of the storms that 2020 sent our way. And uh, Jim from The Office wasn't alone. There's this woman, uh, her name was Jenny. She's from Boston. She's 103 years old, and she got COVID at 103. Not good. Her condition was not great. She was hospitalized. It was not looking good, but then she turned a corner and she beat it. And when her doctors informed her that she was out of the woods, she celebrated as one does at age 103, not taking a swig of Bud Light. I would have chosen a better beer, but nonetheless, she apparently knows what she's doing. So in her hospital bed, no less. Uh, That's just hilarious to me. All right, so it wasn't just uh, Jim from the office and Jenny either. Somebody even found a way to take the bane of our existence, the masks we were all forced to wear and make angels out of them, tree angels out of those blue and white masks that scratched our face all year long that some of you are wearing right now. All of you are wearing masks, but some of you are wearing those masks. And, uh, and somehow they made something beautiful out of it. Some of us found other ways, right? So 
In a year like this, uh, uh, all of us are, are struggling with um, mental health, I think. A lot of us have some trauma going on. A lot of us don't feel a great sense of certainty about the future. And some of us found comfort in, in different ways. Um, and one thing that we saw was that those who worshiped God together every week dealt with this year a little bit differently. Let me tell you what I mean. In a study that was released by Gallup recently, this is a 2020 study, very recent data, it showed that Americans across the board perceived their mental health to be on the decline, like worse than ever. Since Gallup has been running this poll for more than 20 years, it's never been worse. The results have never been worse than they are today. Only 34% of Americans perceive their mental health to be in an excellent state. That's down from 43% in 2019, and it's down from 51% in 2004. And when those numbers are broken down by demographic, it's not like, you know, some of us are doing really, really bad and others of us are just kind of holding steady. Every demographic across the board showed decreases in terms of our perception of our mental health state. So um, men, for example, were down 8% from 2019 to this year in terms of how we perceive our mental state. 8% fewer men said, I'm doing great. 10% fewer women from 2019 to 2020 said, I'm doing great. Uh, 10% of white Americans, 10% fewer white Americans said, I'm doing great in 2020 compared to 2019. 8% of non-white Americans said the same. Only one demographic group that they looked at, and they looked at many, only one group uh, said they were they perceived their mental health to be stronger and better in 2020 than in 2019. And that was the group of people who worshiped God every week. Uh, on a weekly basis, those who worshiped God said that their mental health was stronger. 4% more people said their health, mental health was better in 2020 than in 2019. How is that even possible? How could anyone be doing better in 2020 than in 2019? Is that just a fluke? I guess you could chalk it up to just a fluke. It's just one study. It's just one data set. Okay, but I don't know that it can be that easily written off. I think there's more to it. And I think what this leads me to see is that it's really possible to find joy. Even in a year like this, it's possible to find real comfort and real peace. It's possible to have that sense of assurance you once had that 2020 took from you it's possible to reclaim it if you look in the right place to find it. And therein lies the issue. So to prepare our hearts for Christmas, what we're doing with this series, a 2020 Christmas, The Weary World Rejoices, is we're looking at this book in the Bible called the Psalms. And there's a reason why we're looking at the Psalms. It's because there's no better book for 2020 than the Psalms. In the Psalms, you have 150 Poems, prayers, and songs that were written, you know, many, many centuries ago, from like 1000 BC until like 500s BC. These psalms were written, and they were written in some of the the worst moments of people's lives. Some Jewish leaders and, and priests, they wrote these psalms whenever their lives were hitting the fan. Circumstances looked awful. From the outside looking in, you'd say, that guy has no hope. And they wrote these psalms, and the psalms almost always followed the same pattern. They always started with this brutal honesty with God, this raw pain, just maximum pain, maximum confusion, but they almost always resolve 
in maximum joy and maximum clarity. And that kind of paradox, how can the same person express maximum pain and maximum joy in the same song? That paradox is totally 2020. I mean, how how many times this year have I, for a fleeting moment, thought, I'm going to be fine. This is great. More time with my family, more time at home. I've got a nice house. This is awesome. I'm fine. This is going to be, this is going to be great. And then like 30 seconds later, I'm pounding my head on my desk. <laughs> like my life is over. I hate my life. What's wrong with me? Like, and just this, this total up and down year that we're having, it just really screams the spirit of the Psalms. And so we're, we're looking at the Psalms to try and figure out what they knew what they knew that maybe we are missing. Because like Pastor Kale so aptly, beautifully said last week, you can't get the kind of joy you find at the end of a psalm without being honest about the kind of pain you find at the beginning of it. Some of us want the last part without the first. It doesn't work that way. I'm gonna share a psalm with you right now. This is the 10th psalm, Psalm 10. And I just want you to listen and just absorb the words. And I want you to ask yourself, If I knew this guy, if I knew the person who wrote these words, what would I assume he's going through? What kinds of a life would I assume he's living when he writes this Psalm? So this is Psalm 10, okay. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes of his devices. He boasts about the cravings of his heart He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. The wicked man he's talking about, the wicked man's ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He lies in wait. He murders the innocent. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, God. Don't forget the helpless. You, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You are the helper of the fatherless. At times like this, I'm wondering, is the psalmist praising God for who he is or is he reminding God who he is? You remember who you are? Do something. You're the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. What would you assume about this man? What has he seen? Well, clearly he's seen too much. He's seen too much of this world. He's seen too much uh, injustice. He's seen too much pain, too much loss. He's one too many times seen good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And he's fed up but he's honest with God about it. He's like, the bad guys always win and the good guys always lose and evil goes unnoticed and righteousness goes punished and it just doesn't seem right. Lord, where are you? Why do you run? Why do you hide? Why do you keep your distance when we need you? All right. I get that, man. I feel that. That's a helpless feeling. Have you ever felt powerless? Have you felt powerless this year to do something you know should be done, to change the world in some way that you know it should change, but you can't? 
It's beyond you. It's above your pay grade. It's outside your reach. Isn't that a helpless feeling? Doesn't it drive you nuts? And it does me. We were out here yesterday before all the rain and stuff. We were outside doing a Lifehouse event for single mothers and their babies and, and expectant mothers, women who were kind of on the brink of, of you know, choosing abortion, but they chose life. And, and our church and other organizations, churches are surrounding them with love through Lifehouse Houston. And we had a, like a Christmas festival out there where they got to go from table to table and get presents for their kids that y'all donated. Thank you so much. And it was a beautiful day in so many ways. And I know I should just take the good and leave the bad, but I can't do that. I also saw people, women and children in particular, who have been dealt a very different hand than I was dealt. And I can't make sense of why I get to live this life I'm living, which is pretty good, and they get what they got. It's not because I chose better choices, I promise you. It's definitely not that. I've not made great choices my whole life. I haven't made great choices this morning, but I'm, I'm here and they're there. It's hard for me to comprehend the seeming random sort of nature of the universe sometimes and how life works. When I think about my Christian brothers and sisters in places like China, while we American Christians whine about having to wear masks at church, Chinese people would love to be able to wear masks at church. They would love to be able to go to church, mask or not. They're getting their heads cut off because they believe in God, as are Muslims and other people of faith in totalitarian places like that. Why do they get that life and I get this one? I, I can't quite make sense of it. I'll be honest with you, it brings me down sometimes. The unfairness, the seeming unfairness of it all. I don't know what to do with that or, or about that. And then I think about, uh, about COVID-19 in particular, you know, and I think about, gosh, all these businesses that are shuttering. And every time I read about one, it breaks my heart just again and again. Restaurants that are shuttering because these, most of these are small businesses that somebody started, like a family business, most of them. And I know what it's like to kind of start something from, from scratch. My family and I moved here from Kansas City to do this. And I can't imagine, because of some circumstantial stuff beyond my control, this just being ripped out from underneath us. This beautiful community we have at the story, and I know a church and a business are not exactly the same thing, but I know that uh, for many people, the businesses they pour their hearts into, the restaurants they pour their lives into, it's like part of their family, and suddenly it's gone through no real fault of their own. It's a very devastating, sad thing. And I know we don't talk a lot about this. Everybody's measuring the losses of COVID in terms of infection rates and hospitalizations and deaths. And we should talk about those things. This is a dangerous illness. However, I think what goes unnoticed are the casualties of the response. One study, I believe it was Yale University, put a study together several years back that showed that for every uptick of 1% of unemployment in America, there are 37,000 lives lost for every 1% of uptick in unemployment, 37 untimely deaths. I'm sorry, 37,000 untimely deaths. Nobody really talks about that. It happens slower. It's harder to measure, but there's real pain. And just look at what's happening like with Houston ISD and school districts across the country and how our children are, are they're not learning remotely. <laughs> Kids are not wired to learn remotely. They barely learn in person. 
And now we're telling them to learn remotely apart from their friends, especially little kids. Little kids need to be socialized and together. And I understand the complexities of the situation and I'm not pushing for any agenda or anything. I'm just saying there's pain. In every household with kids, there's pain because every day matters in the life of a child. Their development is so rapid that if they're not developing, they're lost, they're losing time. And that kind of pain, there's depression setting in with little kids all over the country and in households maybe that are represented here. And nobody's talking about that, but that's real. Anyway, I I just say all that not to depress you. (laughs) I'm just telling you, that's the the world we're living in. and, And what do we do with that? Well, what I hope we can do is learn to pray like a psalmist prayed. To learn to go to God like the psalmists did. Because most of us just, men especially, we just pack it down inside. We just internalize it compartmentalize it, tighten the lid so it doesn't, <laughs> eventually the lid just explodes, you know, in the jars, and then we hurt people and, and uh, no one understands what's wrong with us. And, but we try to just keep it down to not be a bother to anybody, but you can't do that forever. But if we follow the psalmist's way, what we would do is we would open up to God about it and say, God, what are you doing? Why do you keep your distance? Why do you hide your face? You're supposed to be the king forever. You're supposed to be the father of the fatherless. Well, here's the fatherless. Where are you? And when you pray like that, I think something, something begins to click. Something begins to happen. Most of us, if we're honest, lack the faith to pray like a psalmist. But if there's a silver lining of 2020, for me, it's that I've learned a little bit more about what it means to pray with more questions like the psalmist did. You know, the, the, the Psalms aren't the only place that you find that kind of pattern in Scripture. This is really the pattern that is there throughout all the Bible. As I said in the first week of the series, the Psalms were meant to be just a microcosm of the greater Word of God. And so the pattern you find in the Psalms is the, is the, the pattern you find in the rest of the Bible, just writ small. So it usually goes like this. People of God are hurting hurting mightily, wondering where God is. And then God shows up either to all the people or to one in particular. And God says, I see your pain and I'm going to do a thing. And the person or the people are like, I'm not sure we believe you. How, how are you going to do this thing? But how? You see that again and again in scripture, but how? And, And then God shows them how. But before you get to that, you've got to go through all these other steps First, this seems to be how God teaches us through our trials and our struggles, right? So let me walk you through some examples. Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, you know, uh, 3,000 or so years ago, there was a man named Abraham, who we all know as the, the great father of the three great monotheistic religions and all this stuff. But, but before that, Abraham was a barren, infertile old man in pain because he had not produced any offspring, which was just about as bad as it could get for an old man in those days. God came to Abraham and said, I see your pain. You're going to be the father of many nations. I'm about to do a thing. And Abraham said, I don't know, but how? In Genesis 15. Three chapters later in Genesis 18, God sent angels to Abraham's wife. He had convinced Abraham, but not Sarah. And in Genesis 18, the angels came to Sarah and said, I see your pain. God sees your pain. And when we come back to you a year from now, you will be with child. And Sarah said in Genesis 18, 12, but how? And then she laughed at the angel. She couldn't believe it. 
Fast forward a little bit to Exodus. Exodus chapter three, when the people of God were living in slavery in Egypt, God saw them, saw their suffering, saw their pain, goes to Moses, who was watching some sheep in a field and appeared to Moses in a burning bush and said to Moses, it's time. I see my people suffering. I'm going to set them free. Abraham said in, in Exodus 3.11, but how? Fast forward to the New Testament, Luke chapter one, old priest named Zechariah is in the temple inside the Holy of Holies doing his priestly duties. Zechariah, like Abraham years before, was childless in his old age. And God came to Abraham, came to Zechariah in through an angel and said, I'm going to give you a son and your son will prepare the way for my son. And Zechariah, who was old and his wife Elizabeth was old and barren and infertile all those years. Zechariah said, but how? And then the next passage in Luke chapter one, the angel appeared again, this time to a young girl who was settling down for the evening in her home in Nazareth. And he appeared to her in Luke chapter one when the angel came to Mary. Verses 32 to 33. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. This is not a human king we're talking about. This is something else. His kingdom will never end. And literally Mary said in the next verse, guess what? But how? But how will this be since I am a virgin? And she did not understand how she would be with child. She wasn't even married yet. Listen, I don't just want you to know that people were always asking God, but how? I want you to know that in every instance, when the people of God asked him, but how, he proceeded to show them how, all right? So Abraham said, but how? And God said, I'm going to give you a son. Sarah said, but how? And God said, your son will be the future of my people. Moses said, but how? And God said, you're going to be the one, Moses, to go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Zechariah said, but how? And God said, I'm going to give your old lady, Elizabeth, a son who will prepare the way. And then when Mary said, but how? God showed her how too. But what he said was different this time. Instead of, I will give you a son, instead of I will make you a father, God put himself in place in the promise to Mary. So, so instead of I will make you a father, like he said to Abraham and Zechariah, he said, I am going to be a father. God is going to be the father. Instead of I'm sending Moses to free my people, God is saying, I'm coming to free my people. God's promises are different here in Jesus. In Jesus, what we find is the fulfillment of all the promises he ever made before. You see, it wasn't until Jesus came that God's promise to Abraham was even true. Up until then, Abraham was the father of one, maybe two nations. But at this point, when Jesus comes to earth and in the aftermath of his death and resurrection, Abraham became the father of many nations through Christ. Sometimes the promises of God take time. This 
girl marries uh, one of the more fascinating characters in all the Bible, definitely my favorite character in the Christmas story. Now, you may not know this, maybe if you've been around other Christmases here at the story, you do. Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old. There's no reason to believe she was older. Jewish people in the first century married their daughters off when they were of age to bear children physically, biologically. It's probably 13 or 14. No. You may be wondering, as I've always wondered, why in the world would God entrust the most important baby that's ever been born into the hands of a 13-year-old girl? I used to really, I used to really wonder why until... I became this year the father of a 13-year-old girl. And you might think that all my fears and suspicions have been confirmed. But I will tell you, in some ways, the opposite is true. I kind of get it now. Because 13-year-old girls are, I don't know, headstrong and determined. You might even say they're stubborn. 13-year-old girls have boundless, limitless energy and life. And they shine such a bright light and they just have this unlimited optimism about them that's borderline irrational sometimes, I'll be honest. They're not always the most responsible lot, but 13-year-old girls cannot be stopped. And I wonder if God knew that whoever would, would be the one to carry the Son of God into the world, they would need that kind of spirit, the spirit of a 13 or 14-year-old girl. I, I wonder if, if God knew that Mary's journey would not be an easy one. Of course he did. This week on the, on the Story at Home podcast, um, Melissa Irwin, who is our, our uh, coordinator of family discipleship, she, on the Friday episode, shared about Mary's situation in such a beautiful way. I was going to teach this part, but, but I can't do it as well as Melissa. And, and, and I think you'll find her, her teaching um, really applicable and her voice really soothing. So I'm just going to give you two minutes of Melissa Irwin talking on the Story at Home podcast this week about Mary. Check this out. Let's take a look at the reality of, for a pregnant, unwed teenager in the first century. There are four things I think we need to consider about Mary's situation. First, there's a lot on the line for Mary. Her betrothal to Joseph is much different than a modern-day engagement. A pregnancy would bring great shame and its consequences to Mary, Joseph, and their families. Second, by traveling to visit Elizabeth, she was breaking cultural norms. As a betrothed virgin, she would have been prohibited from travel. Her actions took courage, and she didn't act half-heartedly. We read that she immediately arose and hurried to see Elizabeth. Third, this travel would have been grueling and potentially dangerous for Mary. It likely took about three to five days to arrive at Elizabeth's home. This was a long trip, perhaps on a donkey, but definitely without paved roads, shock absorbers, or air conditioning. As I mentioned before, a betrothed virgin was not allowed to travel. Perhaps this was because of the physical dangers or threats that came with being a woman on the road. Fourth, her status as betrothed meant that she did not have communication with Joseph. And it's important to know that she traveled prior to his knowledge of this situation. We read that she immediately went to Elizabeth 
She did not take her time, but ran with haste. Was she running away to escape the earthly reality of her situation? Or was she running toward the reality of her heavenly promise? We can only guess what caused Mary to run to Elizabeth. Scripture only tells us that she goes immediately in response to what Gabriel tells her. All right, so Mary, after finding out she was pregnant by surprise with the Son of God, the child of promise, she ran away. That's the, that's the short version. She went, went with haste immediately. She left, Bethlehem, left Nazareth, ran off into the hill country, not Fredericksburg, Israel's hill country. And then she spent three months with her relative Elizabeth, that's Zechariah's wife, who was also pregnant miraculously. And the first person to recognize and worship Jesus was actually the baby in Elizabeth's womb, um, John the Baptist. And Mary spent three months there, I guess, just kind of preparing, being ministered to by Elizabeth and getting ready to go back and face the music uh, in Nazareth, in in her hometown of Nazareth. And so before I get to what happened next, I I thought I would share with you the song Mary sang. She actually came up with this and sang this song after spending time with Elizabeth before going back home. And instead of me reading this, my 13-year-old daughter, Joelle, is here to read it in a voice similar to what Mary's must have sounded like. I want you to listen to Mary's song and ask yourself if it sounds familiar in rhythm and content to some other stuff we've talked about in this series. So Luke chapter 1, Joelle, take it away. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all the generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Thank you, sweetheart. So I want to I talk about Mary as we wrap up here. Um, I want to I ask how in the world a 13-year-old girl mustered the, the courage and strength that would elude m- most of us. How did she survive and even thrive in the situation she was in when externally the circumstances of her life were completely being flushed down the toilet? Like her life was uh, was turning to, to just a dumpster fire in terms of how the world would have looked at her. Like she sang this song just before going back to face the music in Nazareth to tell her fiance, hey, I'm pregnant and it's not your baby. Will you still marry me? To tell her parents, who were no doubt conservative and religious, that she was pregnant outside of wedlock, to face all the animosity of her friends and probably being abandoned by her religious community, to face all of that, and not just temporarily, Mary faced this kind of adversity the rest of her life. There were rumors about this woman forever, about how she really got pregnant and all this stuff. And that's what she signed up for by saying yes to God. Where did a 13-year-old girl find that strength? We need to know this. 
Because when the storm winds blow around us, many of us fall and fail. Many of us are uprooted. But Mary's strength was like, her courage was like rooted in something deeper so that when the storms blew around her, she, she still stood tall. And I think her secret is in her song. I think her secret is in her song. Are you listening to Mary's song, The Magnificat? Did it it sound familiar to the Psalms of the Old Testament? And scholars have analyzed Mary's song in in terms of its rhythm and its cadence and vocabulary. And there's no doubt that Mary's song is, it would fit perfectly with the other 150 Psalms. It's absolutely meant to be a psalm, which tells you that the one who wrote this song was rooted in the Psalms before the storms came. So even at an early age, Mary was familiar with God's word. She was deeply rooted in the words of the Psalms. She had been singing them since she was a little girl. So that when the storms blew, she was not only able to recite the Psalms of her youth, she was able to write a whole new one. And to say, my life's falling apart, but I trust you. I know you're still king. I know you'll bring justice. Let it be so. I'm the Lord's servant. At 13 years of age, she sang this song to God. I think whatever we're rooted in determines how we do in the storm. And I think if we're real honest, as much as it might hurt to hear it, I think those of us that have been completely tossed and torn by this storm, we've lost ourselves in it. You feel just like you're not yourself at the end of 2020 because of COVID and shutdowns or because of a loss in your family or because of a job situation or you feel it because of what's going on politically, like that is symptomatic of being rooted in something other than the timeless word of God. Rooting yourself in the shifting sands of politics, rooting yourself even in the shifting sands of another person rooting yourself in the shifting sands of your job, your career, rooting yourself in the shifting sands of materialism or entertainment. It's always going to leave you so shallowly rooted that when the storm winds blow, you're sure to be tossed and torn. Your roots can't grow deep at Nordstrom. Your roots can't grow deep online. Your roots can't grow deep even in a person because people and jobs and Things, they come and go. They come and go, and when they're gone, who are you? The word of God is forever. That's where your deep roots grow. If you came into 2020 deeply rooted in the word of God, you're probably one of those 4% or more in that category that said, I'm feeling all right in spite of it all. I know who God is. I know who I am. This week on the Maybe God podcast, I know I throw a lot of podcasts at you, but we have, we have a few here at The Story. The Maybe God podcast is long form. It's an hour and 20 minute long episode we just released about a young man named Greg Kelly, a high school football star in Leander, Texas, who was on his way to a Division I scholarship when he was falsely accused of some heinous, heinous crimes against children. He was sent to prison. He was convicted. And he talked about sitting in prison and reading the Bible 
for the first time in his life, his third day in prison as a sex offender, where the life expectancy of sex offenders, child sex offenders, is days, not years, he said. And he read through the Bible cover to cover. And he said that's when he started to feel like himself. He felt alive again. And I asked him what he found in there. And he said, what I found was a savior who was also falsely accused. What I found was a man named Joseph in the Old Testament who spent years in prison, even though he didn't belong there. He never should have been there. And God, God came through sevenfold for Joseph and restored him to life and freedom again. So I'm just asking you what you're, what you're rooted in. You might not be sitting in a jail cell right now in prison like Greg Kelly, but I imagine you feel like you're in some kind of prison. You feel tied down to something. You feel burdened, lost. Well, what are you rooted in? Where are you letting your roots grow? Serious question. You know I'm going to say this as a preacher. You should be rooted in the Word of God. You saw that coming, right? But I know what the common answer is. I don't know where to start. This book is like reading another language to me. I don't even know where to begin. Okay, I hear that. I hear that excuse. Let me be real with you. I'm a little tired of that excuse because I think it's little more than just that. I think we use that as an excuse to never even open the Bible at all. It's not really that complicated to get started. You can read a psalm a day by yourself with friends and roommates or with your family in person or online, and you can let the words soak into your soul and grow those roots deeper so that when the next storm blows through, you won't be tossed and torn and thrown for a loop. Instead, you'll be anchored and rooted deep in the word of God. The winds will still affect you. They'll still, they'll still hurt you. They won't have you. They won't take you because you're rooted in the one thing that matters most. The word of God is a gift for you. The Bible is a gift for us. Let us not forsake it. Let us not put our roots down elsewhere thinking that it's going to last. It won't. Open the word for yourself. This Christmas, we're going to have a lot going on, I know, but I bet we have less going on this Christmas than most. You're going to have time, especially between Christmas and New Year's when no one expects anything of us. It's that glorious one week of the year. And you can sit and open the word for yourself and you'll find God waiting for you there. And you'll find that his promises have always been, continue to be, and will always be trustworthy and true. His promises will always come to pass. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you for your promises and thank you for young Mary. Reminds us that uh, whatever age we are, whatever class or status we're in, Lord, uh, you can call us out and we can find strength to persevere. Whatever other people say about us, however strong the storm winds blow around us, doesn't matter. You can grow deep roots in us, anchoring us to your word, showing us how to trust your promises as our forefathers and foremothers of faith have done for thousands of years. Lord, it's hard to believe sometimes, but your promises always come to pass. And we confess we've chosen to put our faith elsewhere at times. But right now, Lord, we come home to you. We lay down our roots in you, trusting the promises of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.